good, good, good. Um, I had a great conversation uh, yesterday. Uh, we are walking with a couple um, pertain- as they are preparing for marriage. And in the discussion, uh, we talked about the concept of communication. And communication is, is multifaceted. In communication, there is a, there is a source of the message. There is a encoding of the message. And so the source, for example, right now I'm communicating to you. And so I am the source and I am encoding this message as we speak in real time. And then there's a channel to the message and the channel is my voice right now. Sometimes you write letters. Other times you send text messages. Other times you use social media, et cetera, et cetera. And those are different channels. And so I'm using the channel of voice to communicate a message that I'm encoding in real time. And then on the other end, there is a receiver of a message, and that receiver is decoding the message, right? And between source and receiver, everything, if I understand receiver, then that changes how I encode my message, right? That changes my delivery. In other words, the way I communicate with my bros is not the same way I communicate with my wife. Are you tracking with that? If I communicate with the bros the way I communicate with the wife, trouble will ensue. So I got to find a different way to communicate with my wife. And so the receiver of my message changes the way that I approach the receiver. Are you tracking with that? So as I understand and I know, and I, or rather as I understand and gain more knowledge about the receiver, the way I communicate changes. Well, prayer is communication with God. It is communion with God and communication with God. We are speaking to God and, in fact, receiving back from God. And so as I begin to learn more about God, the way that I communicate with God will shift and change. And so as we've been discussing this series or or this, this sermon series on prayer, last week we talked about praying like Paul. This week we want to talk about praying like David. And, 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 and in this particular prayer, in Psalm 139, what we're finding is that as David begins to learn more about God or as he begins to articulate and speak out more about God, it will shape the way he approaches God and it should shape the way that we approach God. Are you tracking with that? And so there's some things to be learned about God in this text that I want you to learn in order that your prayers might be shaped differently. Now, the first question is, did David write this one? Because there are a lot of psalms where there are unknown psalmists at work, and, and, and there's even some debate as to whether or not David wrote this particular psalm. But I will say this, for the sake of our, for the sake of our conversation this morning, I'm going to go with it for a lot of reasons. One, because many scholars believe he wrote it. But another reason is because it sounds like David. It sounds like David. David is raw, and David is honest, brutally honest at times. And he just pours his heart out to God on occasion. We read Psalm 51 this morning, and in Psalm 51, David pours his heart out to God. And this is a song But it is a prayerful song, and this prayerful song is a pouring out of the heart to God. 
The first thing I want you to observe and see in this song or in this prayer is that David acknowledges that you know me, God. So why not be honest with you? You know me, so why not be honest with you? These verses in in Psalm 139 verses 1 through 6 describe God's omniscience. That means God's all-knowing. The idea that he knows everything. And David highlights that. He says, oh Lord, you have searched me and you have known me. You know when I sit down. You know when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. These words, again, they speak to the fact that God knows everything. David acknowledges that he is fully known by God. There is not a single thought in his heart that God is not already particularly in detail and rather rather fully aware of and understanding of. Every single thought that is resonating in David's heart is heard loudly by God. He is familiar with not only what we've done or what David has done, but what we even will do. He is familiar with not only everything that we've done and will do, but he is even familiar with every motivation behind the things that we have done and will do. The most intimate details of our hearts The things nobody could ever possibly know about you. The things that you are still discovering about yourself are fully known by God. Fully known by God. The psalmist also seems to point to the reality that the most mundane details about us, the most routine details, the most boring details about us are clearly within God's pool of knowledge. He declares about God that you know me when I sit down and you know me when I rise up. Now check this out. God is fully aware and acquainted with every minute that you will sit and rise today. God is fully aware and acquainted with every single minute that you will sit and rise, not just on today, but for every other day until the day that you die. You may be asking, how important could my sitting and standing be to God? I have no idea. But he knows. He knows every single millisecond, the time that you will rise and the time that you will sit. God is aware of each and every single moment in your life that has happened, is happening, and will happen. He is fully aware of all of your plans. He knows all of your dreams. He knows all of your words even before you speak them. David goes as far as saying that even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it. The psalmist concludes after he has shared these these thoughts of God's omniscience that it leaves him helplessly exposed and hopelessly limited. David says, you hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. His spotlight, God's spotlight is bright and wide and I can't escape it, David says. 
He has boxed me in, and I'm just laid bare before him. I'm exposed in front of him. But also, David acknowledges that he is hopelessly limited. In verse 6, he says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, and I I cannot attain it. The psalmist ponders what God knows about him versus what he knows about himself, and the knowledge overwhelms him. He says that this depth of knowledge I can't touch. I can't mess with. He knows everything there is to know about me. He knows more about me than I know about me. With this kind of knowledge of me at work in God, why on earth would I try to be dishonest before him? Why would I come to him in prayer and try to hide my hand? As if he doesn't already know what's going on in my mind and already know what's going on in my heart. Why would I try to trick him of something I know isn't true of me when I know that he knows me better than I know me? You know, sometimes we, we see people that, 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 are, that are not in pursuit of God and they try to c- convince others that they are pursuing God with familiar words like, God knows my heart. And, and, and that is so true. And that's precisely the reason why we should not attempt to fool him. Because he knows us. He knows us better than we know us. He knows us better than we would ever know us. See, with this kind of knowledge of me, there is no other posture that's really useful to me in prayer than just simply laying myself bare before God and saying, God, this is, this is where I am. Not going to hide it, right? Why would I hide it? You know it. This is where I am. Wherever it is. This is me right now. In need of your help. I'm not bickering. I'm not complaining. I'm not murmuring. I'm just telling you that this is me. It's that raw honesty that, 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 is, that is most sought after because it's, because it's just the reality of who we are, and it's the reality that God already knows anyway. So why are we hiding it from him? So when you pray, pray like he knows everything about you so that there is no reason to be dishonest. Pray like he knows everything about you because he does. The next thing that we see is that in in, in verses 7 through 12 is that that David highlights that, that God sees me. So why not run to him? As we come to the realization that we are fully known by God, the next verses become extremely important for us because the normal response for you and I, when we understand that there is this kind of knowledge at work about us, is to try to get as far away from it as possible. We don't like people knowing us that deeply. But the psalmist doesn't just limit God's exposure of him to what he knows through his omniscience. In verses 7 through 12, he pushes God's exposure of him to what we call omnipresence. Omniscience is knowing everything. Omnipresence is being everywhere. And so David says, where shall I go from your spirit in verse 7? Or where shall I flee from your presence? Verse 7, the psalmist declares that you are everywhere, so there is nowhere where I can go where you aren't there. And we get a better sense of that in verses 8 through 10. 
It says, if I descend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. That's the place of the dead, Sheol. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. To highlight God's omnipresence, David speaks of places that getting to aren't just as simple as basically jumping on a horse or jumping in a car and riding out. He doesn't say, hey, Lord, you see me at the Kroger, and Lord, you see, no, he says, Lord, you see me in the heavens. If I go there, you're there. And Lord, you see me in the place of the dead. If I happen to sneak off to there, you would see me. You're there. These are places that I can't even get to, but you're there. If I go to the highest of heights, you're there in your glorious present. If I go to the deepest of depths, you're there and your judgment is present. In the summer of 1977, NASA sent two unmanned spacecrafts into the unknown, Voyager 1 and Voyager 2. And these two ships have been traveling ever since in space. They are now entering into the uh, interstellar areas of space on the edge of our solar system. They've been traveling nearly 42 years. Collectively, they've covered 25 trillion miles in exploration. And these two spacecrafts will outlive most of us. They will continue in space, exploring And yet, wherever their journey ends, God will be there. The deepest part of the ocean that we currently are aware of is is roughly seven miles deep. Scientists believe that, that approximately one million species exist in the depths of the ocean. Many of them, roughly half of them, possibly more, haven't even been discovered yet, according to scientists. And yet, wherever the journey ends in the ocean and wherever these living creatures happen to dwell that we have yet to discover, God is there. Think about what's being said here. Wherever we are, wherever we have been, wherever we will be, God is, has been, and will be there. In the place of our greatest joys and our greatest successes, God is there. In the place of our lowest failures and our deepest depressions, God is present. He is everywhere. But pay close attention to verses 9 through 12. He is everywhere, but he is not there to taunt. He is not there to mock you in your weakness. He is not there to laugh at you in your failures. In verse 10 it says, even there... Your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. Everywhere I would think to go to find relief from his watching eyes, God is there. And everywhere I would think to flee in order to escape his all-hearing ear, God is there. But you are not there. He is not there to destroy me. He is not there to harm me. Instead, he is there to He is there to hold me and to keep me. Verse 10 matters to us, 
especially in light of verse 9 and in light of verses 11 through 12. When you look at verses 11 through 12, it says, If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me by night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for the darkness is as light with you. He knows everything, and he exists everywhere, so I can't hide from him. David says the darkness that I want to run to and the darkness that many of us want to run to in our low moments in life, David said it's like light to him. The shadows that many of us retreat to to hide from God when we transgress him, when we fall short of his glory, when we sin, David says it's lit up like Christmas lights there for him. But see, here's your encouragement in this. He's not there to torture you. He's not there to torment you. He's there to lead you into the light if you will accept it. David says earlier in the, uh, earlier in the Psalms, a very familiar passage of Scripture, Psalm 23, he says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadows of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. He is there in the darkness, but he is there to lead us. Through the darkness. So why try to flee from him when he's already going to be wherever we're running to? Why try to hide in the darkness from him when he's already there and trying to bring us towards the light? So when you pray, pray like he is everywhere so there is no reason to hide. And when you pray, pray like he is everywhere because he is. In verses 13 through 16, David takes us through this, through this ideal of the fact that God has made us, so why not trust him? You made me, so why not trust me? Or why not trust him? We've moved from, we've moved from omnipresence, that being God is everywhere, in verses 7, uh, 7 through 12, and omnipresence omniscience, that means God knows everything in verses 1 through 6, omnipotence, that is God is all-powerful. We see his power at work in creation of David. What's interesting is that all three of these things, this omniscience, this omnipresence, and this omnipotence is at work in verses 13 through 16. When David begins to speak about mothers carrying children, because all mothers are carriers of their children, but there is divine power at work in the actual creation of the children. Listen to David as he begins to describe his own formation in the womb in verse 13. He says, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Verse 15, he says, my frame was not hidden from you, talking about in the womb, when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depth of the earth, the depths of the earth. See, my creation was not a product, and your creation was not a product of just some random chance luck processes. Your creation was the result of a divine builder's masterful design. 
The Institute for Creation Research examines the marvel of the human creation, and they wrote about it here, and I quote. It says, unless all the critical parts are in the right place at the right time and in the right amount, none of the expected function is attained. And these doctors, they begin to describe how the birth of a child perfectly exhibits all or nothing unity in the wonderful hand of our all-powerful creator at work. In other words, what they're about to describe is an, one of the processes that is so meticulous that everything has to go right or it's done. And so they begin to describe this one example, and it is the multiple temporary, it is one of the multiple temporary structures that allows a child to survive in a watery world for nine months and then suddenly transition into a normal breathing environment after birth. Listen, a substitute lung to get oxygen from the mother, shunts that divert most blood around the developing body's lungs, and blood vessels that connect the baby to the placenta. All of these must work together to enable a, a baby to thrive in the womb. A substitute lung is at work to bring this baby into existence. And then he says this, when, within the first 30 minutes after birth, all the temporary vessels, all the temporary shunts, all the temporary openings normally stop functioning, and they permanently close within the next one to two days. In other words, they are only open to create life. And once that life has been created and exits the womb of the mother, they immediately stop functioning. This is the kind of marvelous design that is at work in you. This is the kind of marvelous design that brought you into being. There was nothing random about this. This is just one of the many miraculous miracles that brings us to life. And it's that type of divine handcrafting that leads David towards praise of God. He says in verse 14, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. But it is not only creation that, that makes God divine. It's not only creation that even leads this psalmist to prayer and praise. It's the ability both to create the creation and to create the destiny for the creation. Are you tracking? See, scientists can do some DNA stuff and clone up some things, but they can't set destiny for anything. This is why we fight for the unborn, because the scripture says divinity as, is at work long before they're pushed through the birth canal. Purpose is being established in the womb before they're pushed through the womb. The Bible says, you, your eyes, in verse 16 of Psalm 139, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, listen, in your book were written every one of them, the day that were the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. In other words, before I exited out of the womb, my life calendar was already set by you. 
purpose is established in the womb. God is overseeing the formation in the womb with careful and intricate detail. And what is happening in the womb of the mother is a divine and marvelous miracle. But the fight for life is not the only implication in this prayer. Another implication is that God made us, infused us with destiny, and is therefore worth our attention whenever he instructs us. No one knows the creation better than the creator. If you really want to understand how something was intended to function, you go back to the source, the one who created it. The original source has given us his intent and his instruction for us in Holy Scripture. And so if he knows everything about us and he created us, even set destiny and purpose in us, then we can take confidence in the truth that he knows what's good for us. When we come to God in prayer, we don't come to God in prayer afraid to pray if he wills. We come to God in prayer confident that when we pray, if he wills, even if if he wills is outside of our will, it's still going to be good because it comes from the original source. One of the biggest battles in our war and and, and the tension that's created, uh, I'm sorry, one of the biggest battles in our war with sin is the tension that's created between what we want and what he has said. Because one is, one, is, one is us, what we want, but what we want is based on limited knowledge. We think we know what we want. We don't have all knowledge. We aren't everywhere, and we aren't all powerful. But what he has said is based on infinite knowledge. Because it's based on omnipotence, omnipresence, and omniscience. We see that struggle at work in Genesis 3, where the first couple, humanity's first couple, Adam and Eve, and Eve is presented with temptation. And Eve sees the temptation, and based on her limited knowledge, she rejects infinite knowledge, right? Because what she wants, she thinks she knows what she wants. And that is at the root of most sin. Is this, struggle to, is this struggle to accept the fact that God not only knows everything about us, but God also created us and wired us in a particular way where he knows what's best for us. So when you pray, pray like he made you. Pray like he made you. And pray like he filled you with purpose so there is no reason not to trust him when you pray. And when you pray, pray like he made you because he did. Now, where does all of this lead us in terms of our understanding? First of all, the truth that God knows everything, so there, or rather, let's just recap. The truth that God knows everything, so there is no reason to be dishonest before him. Where does that lead us? The truth that God is everywhere, so there is no reason to hide from him. Where does that lead us? The truth that God made everything and made everything marvelously so there is no reason not to trust him. Where does that lead us? It it leads us into deeper fellowship with God. 
See, in verse 17, you see that first it leads you to cherishing, a greater cherishing of God. David writes in verse 17, how precious to me are your thoughts. O God, how vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. He says, you know everything about me. No matter where I go, you're there, but you're not just there to taunt me, but you're there to lead me. He says, you've created me and you've created me marvelously, fearfully, and wonderfully. And therefore, to me, your thoughts are precious. What you think is more precious than what everybody else does. What you think is more precious than what the world does. Fam, what you think is even more precious than what I think. Are you tracking? If I would count them, those vast thoughts, they are, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. But, but not only does it lead to greater cherishing of God, it leads to greater hatred towards that which stands against him. He says, oh, that you would slay the wicked, O oh God. O oh, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O oh Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Now, you have to process that in light of all of Scripture. And what I mean by that is that there is a challenge constantly in the New Testament to love your enemies. And there's a challenge even in the Old Testament constantly to treat those who are treating you wrongly, to treat them well in response. And so what the theologians surmise when you read about this ideal of hatred, there's several, there's several takes on it, but one popular take in particular is the idea that there is a loathsome hatred or a grieve, grievous hatred associated with this, which means that it is not a relentless, uncontrolled hatred, but it is a grief and a, and a pity sort of hatred towards those that deny God, towards those that reject God. This is not license for you to not love your enemies like Jesus instructs you. Are you tracking with that? But it is, the real, but it is a call for you to hate sin like God does. For you to hate injustice like God does. And for you to look for justice for those that commit evil. Not only against God's people, but against people. But lastly, not only does it lead to greater cherishing of God and greater hatred for the things that he hates, but it leads us to welcoming this all-knowing, all-powerful, ever-present God into fellowship with us. David now says in verse 30 or 23, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Now notice what happens in this prayer, in this song that we just went through. David starts with a simple acknowledgement. You have searched me and you have known me. I can fool those who don't know me, uh, uh, who don't know me well. I can fool those people a lot. I can fool the people in my life that kind of know me. I can fool them sometimes. Heck, I can even fool myself every once in a while. 
but I can never fool you. You know me better than I know myself, and you have searched me thoroughly. But as David cries out to God, acknowledging his knowledge of all things and acknowledging his presence everywhere and acknowledging his creative power over everything, his acknowledgement progresses to a request. He started with, you have searched me and you have known me. Now he is saying, I invite you, Lord, to search me and I invite you, Lord, to know me. What David comes to the realization is, he comes to the realization that, God, you know it all. You're, you're everywhere I would try to go. And you have created me so you know exactly how I'm supposed to work. And so I invite you. I don't run from you. I invite you into my space. Do your work in me. Go in. Clean house. Weed out whatever's in here that's not like you. If I got blinders on in some areas, maybe I'm, maybe I'm acting like a jerk towards my wife, bring it out. Don't let me hide behind it. Maybe I'm disrespecting my husband, bring it out. Don't let me hide behind it. Maybe I'm not treating my children well, bring it out. Don't let me hide behind it. Maybe I go to Waffle House and I treat the waitress like trash. Bring it out. Don't let me hide behind it. Maybe I'm making excuses for my lust. Bring it out and don't let me hide behind it. I invite you to search me. I invite you to know me because I know if you search me and you know me, then I will be thoroughly searched and I will be thoroughly known. Show me what I don't see. You know everything about me, so instead of a, attempting a futile attempt to run and hide from you, I want to willingly submit to your investigation so I can have your help in seeing everything in me that I can't see today. That's the prayer that we take to God. Search me. You know me. So search me. God knows and God sees. And he doesn't have to always, God, the fact rather that God knows and God sees doesn't always have to be a fearful thing. The fact that God knows and God sees can also be a comforting thing if we allow it to be. close in just acknowledging that this same God that is creating ultimate fellowship that David is seeking fellowship with, that he grants this request in the ultimate way. He grants this request by, by literally coming down from heaven. That, he is, that his ultimate demonstration of fellowship is God in the flesh, his ultimate demonstration of fellowship is Jesus Christ, that he becomes humanity. He links with humanity. And so he knows us, he knows us not just at a distant level, he knows us, he knows us even at an experiential level. He lived what you lived. He walked what you walked. 
He faced what you faced. And yet he retains all the attributes that we described in the very beginning. He is all-knowing. When Peter, when Jesus is talking to Peter in John 21, and Peter and Jesus says, John, I mean, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, Lord, Jesus, you know everything, all-knowing. So you know that I love you. When he prepares to leave his disciples behind and he commissions them and he tells them to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them everything that I've given you and everything that I've taught you. And and lo, I will be with you always to the end of the age, omnipresent. And then Colossians, in Colossians chapter 1, the Bible says about Jesus that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Creative power, omnipotent. And so this all-knowing, ever-present, all-powerful God came down and established fellowship with his people in order that he might even know them more, know them at an experiential level. His knowledge, is, can't, be, his knowledge can't be added upon, but yet he seeks to show us his desire for fellowship and becoming like us, dying for us. And giving us rights to eternal life, giving us rights into his family. And so when you pray, you pray to this God, knowing that he sent his son. He sent his son. And so if he sent his son, then you can trust. You can trust him and run to him, not away from him. And lay yourself bare before him and not be dishonest with him, and seek to obey him at his word, and not disobey him. 